Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. What's up, bro? In this episode, we're going to talk about the godfather of the Italian spaghetti western, Sergio Leone's The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. gunslingers form an uneasy alliance against the third in a race to find a gold fortune buried in a remote cemetery during the American Civil War. It's that time of the year, Warren, for our mid-season classic. Uh, we, we like to use this halfway point as a time to look back on maybe some less appreciated replay value favorites that are still deserving to be in that conversation. This one being the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's one that has definitely stood the test of time. An epic Western, the the most epic of all Westerns. It's about time we're doing it for this podcast. Yeah, the third and final film in the Dollars Trilogy uh, that serves as a prequel. And I watched the, uh, of course, we've all seen the other Dollar films, but I watched them in preparation for this episode, all three films. And, you know, Lee Van Cleef's in the second one, uh, and he lives, but then he, spoilers, dies in this one. So for this to be a prequel, again, uh, you know, it's like the same actors. It's like an anthology playing different characters. But of the three films of the trilogy, this is the rosebud, the gemstone uh, of the trilogy. The gemstone, yeah, it is for sure. and you mentioned Van Cleef being in the other one. It's this. It's it's more of the anthology angle to it. It's they're not the same character. Yeah. It's just the same actor. So um, I did find it interesting though that you, you can tell that this is the prequel because it, it takes place during the Civil War, whereas the other two in the trilogy, and I use the term trilogy loosely, uh, take place after the Civil War. But what's crazy to me is like how fast Leone fired these movies out. I mean, I know they were originally released in the Italian market, but you had. Fistful of dollars in 64 for a few dollars more, 65. And then this film in 66. I mean, how do you fire off those great epics so quickly like that? It, it, it's, it's That's insane. how filmmakers did it back then. They were able to make them quickly, and particularly spaghetti westerns. I will say the one consistent through this anthology trilogy is Clint Eastwood's character. Dresses the same, same clothes, same mannerisms, very much the same character, even though he's called three different nicknames throughout each film. Uh, in fact, in the original draft of this movie, his uh, the, the character was uh, Joe, just like in uh, uh, the first film. So then it became Blondie uh, in the Italian and English version versions of the movie. But uh, following the success of A Few Dollars More, United Artists secured the screenwrites from film screenwriter Luciano Vinzoni, uh, and they hired him to write the third movie. Director Sergio Leone and producer Alberto Grimaldi returned for the third film, and United Artists greenlit the picture for a million bucks. Yeah, and I think I'd read that originally, uh, Leone, like, they, they wanted to have it more of a a comedy angle to it, especially with the Tuco character. So they brought in some comedy writers to help out with that. And it was not a good result. They kind of didn't really capture the essence of what Leone was going for. I think he famously said that uh, he hated it. In fact, Um, so it was, uh, it it went through some iterations of what they, what the studio wanted, what Leone wanted, but in the end, Leone had the vision and he's what he, he brought it to life. Well, Leone's approach, he wanted to show the absurdity of war uh, and the camp conditions of the winners in war. The union in this case was just as terrible as the losers, the Confederate army. Uh, lots of people died in those camps. that just didn't have to. I mean, there were reports of the uh, Andersonville camp losing, had 120,000 casualties. That's just an insanely high number of deaths uh, in a camp uh, just because of the bad conditions. So he really wanted to show the, the pointlessness of, of all that. But the main premise uh, from the get-go, Vinzoni set, uh, was three rogues who are looking for some treasure at the time of the American Civil War. And he ended up writing the, the initial script in 11 days, so he says. That's the core of the film, you know, is that it's about these three men. And yes, you have the American Civil War as the backdrop, but that's what the story goes back to. And my, my favorite thing about those serious issues that, you know, I mean, there's hundreds of books, thousands even, written about the Civil War. But this is, even though it's a serious issue, it takes, it, it's the background of, of the, the movie that's going on about the 
the three main characters. That's something a lot of epics do. Uh, they use an, uh, a big uh, 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 event or war or as a backdrop to tell an intimate story of characters uh, within that uh, circumstance. Right. Oh, I almost forgot. Before we move on, you got to hear Sergio Leone's pitch to the studio. Okay. It's about this good guy. It's about this bad guy. <laughs> And it's about this ugly guy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, Not originally called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The working titles at first uh, was The Two Magnificent Tramps. Uh, the, the studio wanted to call it River of Dollars to keep it uh, alongside that you know, Dollars trilogy yeah. to kind of have that word in there. Uh, the final title in Italian, is, which again is the first market it was released in, was Il Buono, Il Bruto, and Il Cavito, which actually means the good, the ugly, and the bad. So it was it was flipped a little bit. And, from- that, and that led to a mistake in a trailer where Tuco is referred to as the bad and Angel Eyes was referred to as the ugly. Uh, yes, the, yeah. yeah. Filming began in Rome in mid-May 19. 19- 66 and they wrapped in july 1966 he shot this epic film in like six or seven weeks which again probably speaks to how he was able to crank out the trilogy in successive years yeah primarily shot in spain uh which is used to represent the american southwest i think they did a little bit on a soundstage in rome i mean this is all in, in europe though mm. but you can't tell by watching it, though. Uh, you do feel it captures the essence of the American Southwest. Now, I don't live in you know the desert or anything like that, but it, to me, to me, it doesn't take me out of out of the picture thinking, oh yeah, this is Spain for sure. So it does capture um, the, the the environment very well. Yeah, the epic landscape. It, it, it's a it's a it's yes, a great it's a great it. double yeah. for 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 the American uh, Southwest. You know, because uh, back there's just so much open land. Uh, now during production. You know, Leone, every actor would say, was a fantastic director, uh, but he was. It's pretty notoriously known, though. He was lax about safety on set. <laughs> that's, that's an understatement. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, it's a miracle. No one was seriously hurt or killed. Um, you, you know, uh, Eli Wallach had several run-ins uh, that, that are well documented. Uh, you know, he accidentally drank acid instead of his favorite Italian soda because it had a white lid similar to his Italian soda bottle. And, uh, you know... It, the moment he took a sip, he knew, oh, shit, this isn't my drink. Uh, it just the, the thought of drinking acid is just terrifying. I saw about one where he was when they he was getting the handcuffs off uh, with the train uh, that uh, there was some, I guess, some steps on the train the cars. The platform, that, the stepping platform, yeah. The stepping platforms on all the train cars that wasn't accounted for. And if he would have gotten up too soon... He, could have been a very very bad accident there uh, and then uh, also don't forget uh, the uh, uh you know eli told sergio like hey you need to put cotton in the horse's ears that's what we do in hollywood and sergio's like no nah, don't worry about it and so the <laughs> scene where blondie uh takes a shot to shoot the rope loose when they're pulling out the bounty hunter scam uh the horse took off at the sound of uh, eastwood's gun with Eli still tied up on the horse, and the horse rode for a mile before he could get it oh to my stop. Gosh. And he was tied; his hands were tied up the whole time. So, uh, you know, very. Uh, I can only imagine as an actor, you you'd never be put in that situation today. They most certainly would have a stuntman, particularly for the wide shot, to uh, to capture that. But uh, the fact he had to go through that is just crazy. Yeah, it, they didn't have a stunt double. You know, a Cliff Booth in there for Rick Dalton, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, uh, stepping in to take the risk. But there were some other snafus, so to speak, uh, that did uh, cause some derailing of uh, filming the the bridge uh, scene where they blow blow it up uh, near the end of the film uh, was first off, it was built by the Spanish army. And that was not the only thing that the Spanish army was commissioned to build for the film. So they didn't build it like a, a Hollywood prop bridge. They built it like a real structure. Their combat engineers did the job. No, it was sappers. It was a Spanish sappers. Yeah. Right. Well, that's another word for combat engineer. Well, it's uh, a high, so, you know, a sapper is a high level engineer. It's like oh. the equivalent to a ranger. Oh, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I stand corrected. Uh, but they, they would do their job. I mean, it was a legitimate structure is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it required heavy duty explosives. You had an Italian uh, camera operator and a Spanish army captain trying to give signals to each other. There was a miscommunication. They blew it early and all the cameras got destroyed. Well, no, it was the captain's fault. It was the captain's fault. He okay. was antsy. He wanted to blow it up. And, 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 <laughs> I would uh, too. Give me, the, give me the button. I want to do and, it. And he was antsy and he, he blew it up too soon. No cameras were rolling. And so they had to uh, go back and the captain felt so bad the army built it for free. Took him three weeks. They went back and shot it. This time, special effects coordinator was holding the trigger and uh, they got the shot. <laughs> 
<laughs> Which is probably how it should have been to begin with. If yeah, you're exactly. Making it for a film, yeah. Another thing that the Spanish Army built was the Sad Hill Cemetery set that the actual, you know, the the, the standoff takes place in the, the, the end of the film. Uh, that was built specifically for this film, that look. And then they abandoned it. Uh, they didn't really do anything with it after that. However, back in 2015, it was rebuilt uh, as it, similar to how it looks in the film. Uh, there was a 20, uh, 2017 documentary about it called Sad Hill Unearthed, uh, talking about the the revitalization of that. And it's actually a cultural landmark. Now you can go visit it. Probably never will, but that's pretty badass. Just yeah, given its Spain, location. Yeah. 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 yeah, Classic references in the film. Greed from 1924 when Tuco is stranded with lots of money and no horse to get to town. You almost feel like uh, Breaking Bad did that later with Walter White. Remember, he's got the oh, barrel yeah. of cash and he's completely isolated. It's like, yeah, having all that money doesn't do you a lot of good when you're uh, all alone. That's, um, that's funny, yeah. And Public Enemy from 1931, Tuco assembling the gun and then robbing the uh, the, the the shopkeeper. Oh, yeah. That, uh, yeah, it's kind of kind of classic. And then uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, the, the crying uh, harmonica player. Oh, yeah, with the, the violin player during the interrogation yep, scene. Yeah, yep, yeah, that's right. And then uh, Magnificent Seven from 1960, the, the, the extreme close-up, the shot of the eyes. Uh, at the very mm-hmm. end of the uh, the standoff, uh, some shots taken from Magnificent Seven there, and then uh, of course uh, the Great War from 1959. We talked about this m- earlier, the backdrop of the Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, and that has been a classic theme through films. Is where you it, it, it adds so much scope and makes the film uh, it just makes it even that much more epic when you have a, a, a backdrop of, of a major event happening uh, with your characters. Not only that, but them influencing major events just to get after what they want. Like when they're trying to split up the North and the South from fighting so they can cross that river there. So <laughs> greedy bastards. <laughs> I mean, 200,000 in gold at that time. I mean, whew. Um, music of this film worth a whole podcast for itself for the music of the good the bad and the ugly uh, Ennio Morricone uh, just an epic epic score this score was so great that Leone and Morricone worked together before shooting even began to sort out some of the themes just kind of lay the groundwork and you can see that come across in the film itself during during the shooting is that oh yeah it was staged specifically so that certain shots certain scenes would play out along with music that they had planned yeah and this is the third of six collaborations between Leone and Morricone yeah, they did uh, the, the the Dollars Trilogy, and then they did Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America, and then, and then one other that is escaping me right now. It was Duck You Sucker with uh, James Coburn as the lead. The only Leone film Morricone didn't score was his first film, uh, the, the the Colossus of Rhodes. Uh, but yeah, they, they were frequent collaborators. Morricone, you know, known for turning the genre of Western, soundtrack, Western film soundtracks on its head. Uh, very much part of the avant-garde movement that was going on in Italy in the late 50s, early 60s. So he took some chances with this uh, film uh, specifically, and that's why a big part of the reason why it's so legendary today. I mean, this is looked at uh, by the Grammy Hall of Fame as one of the greatest and original scores in film history. Yeah, humans uh, doing coyote howls. I mean, get the <laughs> yeah. fuck. You, I mean, you gotta have balls, balls to do that. No, no, no composer at that time is doing stuff like that. You're referring to the main ah, you know that that theme. Yeah. yeah, and that was if you if you watch the beginning of the film, the very first shot that you see, you hear uh, before the you hear any dialogue at all you hear a coyote howl and it's very similar to that. So it's almost like Morricone took that as an inspiration, that coyote howl. Uh, And some have thought that the coyote is representative of all three characters, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because each one of them has a different instrument that goes along with that motif. Uh, You have Blondie with the, is a flute when you hear the motif for him. Angel Eyes, it's an ocarina. And then Tuco, it's the vocals. You know, kind of, mm-hmm. I think that's more because that's the human part of the film that the audience would like, put themselves in his shoes more than anyone else. Don't want to step on best scenes, of course, that goes without saying. Uh, but I have to mention the ecstasy of gold. Uh, that is so incredible. I, <laughs> I heard that song for the first time before I watched this film. I heard it. On the Metallica S and M album, they start off with that, and I was like, "Wow, that's incredible!" They uh, yeah, wrote this you're for like, the wow. Metallica. Song. Uh, actually, Metallica had been opening with that, along with a lot of other musicians, used that theme 
they've been opening their live shows with that since like the 80s so it's it's an incredible epic the way that it's used in the film when uh, Tuco's head kind of hits the gravestone he realizes where he's at and starts running around I mean that's one of my favorite songs on this soundtrack but it's so good Morricone is a genius the soundtrack is is one of the greatest of all time most iconic in cinema history yeah it was the album itself was on the billboard charts for over a year uh, went up to all the way up to number four, believe it or not, the album did. Uh, but the I would say that the most um, it's most recognizable as a, a cover. The theme is anyway of Hugo Montenegro. He did a, a cover on the Moog synthesizer, which reached number two on the pop chart. So uh, it, it's been inspired through pop culture that even from the year it came out. And we'll move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. Starting at the top of the call sheet with the Leading Man of the Dollars trilogy or the Man with No Name trilogy. There's uh, several different uh, nicknames this goes by, but you got to start with the Leading Man. Clint Eastwood as the good Blondie. Before this movie, uh, his first credit was in 1955. Uh, he, he started off doing some extra work. Uh, and before this film, four movie credits before the Dollars trilogy, but no leading role. So the Dollars trilogy was his, the, the first film was his first leading role. So uh, this part in The Good, and The Bad, and The Ugly was Clint Eastwood's seventh movie overall his third leading part yeah and I, given how the release of the, the the trilogy went i believe when they were trying to cast for this one that the others had not quite hit um or they they hadn't become the big cult followings obviously uh that they are today um so there was some difficulty even getting him to sign on for this one uh, the third one because yeah, he, the played, two, he played some hardball <laughs> yeah that's right but he ended he did end up doing it for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and i'd read a new Ferrari as well, along with 10% of the, the film's profits. Yeah, so Leone was not pleased. No, he, he did force, force you not as the director. You don't want that. But Well, Eastwood said, hey, look, it's either going to be a hit or it's going to be a dud. Probably the latter, but, you know, worst case, I get to see Spain and, uh, and Italy. So uh, it <laughs> yeah. kind of was his attitude with, with doing, these, uh, doing these films. Yeah, so there was no what-ifs for this role. It was always going to be Eastwood. That's what, that's what Louis Leone wanted. I think he had flown to California to, to, to show Eastwood the script and, and, and to make it happen. Good thing Eastwood decided to do it. I mean, even though he hesitated, uh, it, this movie launched him. Uh, into in movie stardom. And after this, I mean, what a hell of a career. A, a bona fide A-list movie star. And then he pivots to an Oscar-winning director-filmmaker. He has won five Oscars, two uh, Best Director Oscars, two uh, Best Pictures, and, uh, and, and an honorary one. So, uh, unbelievable career. What's funny to me, though, is that he worked with Leone on three films, and Leone was famous for having long takes doing multiple takes i mean almost to the point of exhaustion for the actors and now eastwood is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum he's known as like the one one take director like one and done yeah oh i worked on jersey boys on the crew yeah he he's like two takes he's done you can't believe it sometimes one and he's you don't you don't barely hear him say action you barely hear him say cut he just says go and stop just he, he almost whispers it there's no perfect method i mean leone's great eastwood's great as directors it's just to each their own Lee Van Cleef as the bad Angel Eyes uh, Sentenza. Uh, his second film in the Dollars trilogy and his second with Leone and Eastwood. Uh, the character is is strikingly different than his character in A Few Dollars More, uh, which, I mean, he's nowhere near the sadistic uh, psychopath that he, is, he plays in Angel Eyes in this film. He's probably my favorite character of the film as far as like, you know, the, the one of the three. I mean, yeah, Tuco's great. Blondie's great. But as far as like, man, he, Angel is just so cool. Even with his introduction, there's like very little dialogue. He just sits there and locks eyes while he's eating the food. I mean, he's just a badass. He's uh, got like a man in black Westworld quality. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's just something that you want to see more of him. He, uh, the, he's, yeah, I mean, he's you know he's a bad on. guy, but you you love watching him. You just kind of, part of you just kind of roots for him a little bit. Yeah, uh, Eastwood actually came up with the uh, nickname Angel Eyes because of his uh, gaunt face and his, uh, his eyes. He, he came up with that on set and ended up going with it. Yeah, the name Sentenza is really what he's known as in the Italian version uh, of the film. Uh, not the first choice for the role, though. That would actually have been uh, Charles Bronson when it was going to be an American actor. Oh. Uh, yeah, Bronson. Um, oh, man. 
Yeah, I think he had a conflict, a scheduling conflict, and couldn't do it. Or uh, doing uh, doing the Dirty Dozen. That's what it was, Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Um. So, but I can't imagine anyone else uh, in the Van Cleef role. I mean, we do when we get to recastings, but as far as when this movie was made for that era, Van. Oh, it's Cleef. hard to imagine anybody now. But you know, Leone would eventually get Bronson in Once Upon a Time in the West, which Bronson's fantastic in. So yeah. he, he he you could just he wanted to work with that actor and eventually got to. I'm a little disappointed he's not your uh, your MVP. I angel eyes. Nah, man. Been mine. No, 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 no. The uh, MVP. Uh, it's, it's, it's Eli Wallach is the yeah. ugly, the rat. Of course, yeah. uh, it's his first film in the trilogy, but I mean, I, I love the ugly guy. I mean, he is the heart <laughs> and soul of the movie. He is. Uh, you, you know, sure. you learn his backstory, why he became abandoned. We meet his brother. I mean, he's likable. He's funny. He's essential to the movie working. It, he, he affords the film the ability to have the other two characters be an enigma, to be mysterious mm. where we don't know a lot about them. You have to have a character you're riding with. It, it helps. If everyone's just a mysterious badass, the movie doesn't work. So the film, it, 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 it's so complex with the relationships and the character dynamics, and uh, uh, Eli Wallach is just makes the movie work. I, I, he's absolutely fantastic. And as much as you want to be Blondie or you want to be uh, Angel Eyes, uh, we ride and die with Eli Wallach. Yeah, he's the audience's way into the film. You know, he's the, the representation. He's the only one with an arc, so to speak, as far as you, know, you get a little bit of a story. He's like you said, he's not a mystery character. Leone himself has said that he imbued all three characters with elements of himself, which um, any great writer creator will do. It's they they take parts of their personality and make them extremes for a character. Um, a little bit of this is Blondie, a little bit of that is Angel Eyes, but he has said that Tuco is where he most has that personal relation, where he sees the most elements of himself. And it goes even so far that Wallach and Leone himself got along, you know, wonderfully on set. They got they got, got along great. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Eli Wallach was actually able to communicate him through broken French. Leone spoke perfect French, but Wallach, the other actors could barely communicate with him. But Wallach had a great relationship with him. And, you know, Eastwood was concerned with being upstaged by Wallach because of the script. And you can see why. Wallach, uh, in this film, uh, it pains me to say, as great as Eastwood is, uh, he does. Well, and it's, again, it goes back to the character. I mean, Blondie is meant to be that uh, very quiet, stoic, you know, just badass. Whereas, you know, Tuco's got the personality, he gets a lot of the great lines. Um, a lot of the funny moments, the the, the comedic elements of it that just w- wouldn't fit the Blondie character it would be too too out of uh, yeah out of persona. Yeah, Leone cast him based off his work in How the West Was Won, and Wallach was hesitant to 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 want to sign on at first because he didn't want to repeat himself. But uh, like you said, he developed such a connection with Leone and uh, right from the get go, and, and especially after seeing a, a screening of A Few Dollars More, that uh, he knew he had to do it, so he ended up signing on. There's a lot of actors in this film, but we, we you know, the three main actors are who we're, we, we've talked about. I, I do want to mention the, the co-stars of the trilogy. There are 11 actors to appear in more than one Dollars film, mostly bit parts, but four of these actors appeared in all three Dollars films. Really? Okay. I, I did not... I, I did not- read up on this at all so i'm kind of interested in yeah outside of our three main because uh, sure. clint well five actors were in all three if you include eastwood but i'm saying four co-stars right uh, maria briga uh aldo sembrell benitio stefanelli and lorenzo robledo stats and accolades of the good the bad and the ugly original release and this is rare i think maybe the first time we've done this uh in our thus far 77 episodes First release was in Italy, December 23rd, 1966, was not released wide domestically in the U.S. until December 29th, 1967, over one year later. Well, here, here's what's even crazier. The Dollars Trilogy, all three films were released and had the random theatrical engagement in the United States in 1967. So the first Dollars film was released in January. I think the second one was released like in May or June. And then the third, Good, Bad, the Ugly, was released in December. So they spread them out through the same year. Can you imagine that happening today? I mean, it's there's nuts. just nothing. I mean, Tori, you would get this awesome trilogy all in one. I mean, maybe I get like three Marvel movies, three franchise films or in your case, three Batman movies. You imagine Batman Begins, Dark Knight, and Dark Knight Rises. They were made in a complete other country. You didn't get to watch them, and then they all three were dropped on you in one calendar year. (laughs) That would be amazing. Wild. (laughs) Budget was $1.2 million. Uh, Again, it opened in Italy first. Uh, 
made 11.3 million there. Uh, and then when it moved to the, to the U S it opened there, it pulled in another 25.1 million. So off mm. the budget, uh, it did, did pretty well for itself. Like 46 to one. Yeah. Not, not too bad. A running time of two hours and 58 minutes. Man, another long movie uh, on the Replay Value podcast this season uh, following Scarface. <laughs> Which is funny because when we did Scarface, you're like, I think this is the longest movie we'll ever do here. And then the next episode, we surpass that. <laughs> of course, in our rating, uh, zero F-bombs, but a high body count, uh, for, at least for the time, 126. <laughs> the good, uh, Blondie kills 11. The bad, Angel Eyes kills three, and the ugly Tuco kills six. I mean, the bridge battle alone, there's 95 deaths. So, I mean, that, that accounts for most of the film's uh, casualties. Well, that you could count. I mean, there was most likely a lot more than that. That, that you know, that, those on, just on ones screen. we could see. Yeah. 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 Uh, scores of the film Rotten Tomatoes 97% and Metacritic 90. A lot of those were after the fact. At the time it came out, uh, very mixed reviews. Uh, At the time, spaghetti westerns were, uh, back then they were looked down upon uh, as an inferior uh, film to the American westerns. So uh, very mixed reviews. It was criticized for the violence. Uh, Of course, now it, it it gets universal acclaim and is widely considered the greatest spaghetti western ever. Yeah, that, that term spaghetti western, you're right. I mean, it was looked at as a lesser than of the American counterparts, but it doesn't have that same connotation now because you think of this film as the most epic, the best of the spaghetti westerns. It's one of the greatest films ever made. We, we, we got an insight into the attitude of how people, actors and people in the industry felt in America felt about spaghetti westerns at the time. You know, Rick Dalton, nobody wants to do spaghetti westerns <laughs> or fucking farce. <laughs> oh, yeah. How many? I've seen enough. Uh, awards of the film, a one win and one nomination from 1966 when it was released in Italy at the Faroe Island Film Festival, the Audience Award Best Actor Clint Eastwood, and then one nomination from its United States release uh, in 1967 uh, at the 1968 Golden Laurel nominee for action performance Clint Eastwood. So Clint Eastwood got most of the accolades for the film. No cinematography, no director, no score. That's such bullshit. More Coney uh, was robbed for this. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and then another two wins and four nominations from the 2010s. And then a, a Grammy Award, I think a Hall of Fame entry in 20, 2009. So yeah. uh, most of its awards came after the fact. Well, yeah. And it, this just wasn't looked at as an art. It wasn't looked at as the, the level of art that the Academy would normally recognize uh, mm-hmm. at the time, which is why you, you, don't, you don't have uh, that that level of nominations that we would normally see from a film of this magnitude that we're doing on the podcast, but it definitely was, was worthy of them. Uh, Grammy record of the year is what we would normally do, but uh, I wanted to give a shout out to the album of the year uh, for 1967 uh, at the 10th annual Grammy awards. Yeah. That's how long ago this was. It was Sergeant Pepper's lonely hearts club band by the Beatles. Uh, just a, an incredible landmark album. I wanted to give that one a, a shout out. Just one of my favorites. Rightfully so that tells yeah. you more about the time than uh, probably the song of the year. Yeah. And then the billboard hot 100, which this will tell most people nothing because I doubt many have heard of it. It was to sir with love by Lulu. Not one I'm familiar with, but that was, that was the number one. Hmm. Popular movies in 1967, again, covering when it came out in the United States. Other popular films, uh, The Dirty Dozen, James Bond, Sean Connery uh, picture, You Only Live Twice. Yeah. Uh, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Best Picture Oscar winner in the Heat of the Night. No Razzie Awards. First one was until 1981, so uh, no worse picture for us. 1967 TV, top-rated shows, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Lucy Show, <laughs> Doctor Who, Bewitched, Peyton Place, uh, there's like three of those we even saw in syndication that, that still run on TV Land today. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, it's just some iconic shows. Best Comedy Series Emmy winner, Get Smart on NBC. And the Best Drama Series Emmy winner was Mission Impossible on CBS. I think it won it like its second year in a row. Wow. That's awesome. I, I, I love you know hearing about the pop culture this time because you know I've been on the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kick lately, listening to the book, watching the film again, and it just kind of 
uh, putting it back into that era is, is, is it's a great thing to go revisit. Yeah, we're covering a movie from that period, so you can't help but conjure up some of those uh, uh, feelings from from Once Upon a Time. Yeah, I love this. The, the, that's what we get to do during the mid-season classic of the show is we get to go back and look at these underappreciated eras that most people don't even pay attention to anymore. It's, well, look at how iconic these shows are. Get Smart and Mission Impossible were both made into movies. I think the Get Smart was what uh, Steve Car- Carell and uh, uh, Anne Hathaway the, didn't do very well. And then you had Mission Impossible, you know, Tom Cruise, that's become his definitive movie star franchise. Yeah. Price of a movie ticket in 1967, $1.20. Adjusted for inflation, that's $8.93 today. Wow. Dig this, dig this. 1967 events of the year. The first ATM becomes operational. (laughs) Uh, Actually, that... I would have thought it would have been after that. I, that's surprising that 67 was the first. Amazing. I, thought would, I, Amazing. Would come, I thought it would have come later, maybe like the 80s or something. Okay, brace yourself. The first Super Bowl is played between Green wow. Bay and Kansas City. Wasn't even called the Super Bowl back then. Yeah, it wasn't. It was the uh, uh, the AFL-NFL championship game. I think they retroactively redubbed it Super Bowl One, like uh, a handful of years later. The uh, first successful heart transplant takes place. The first issue of Rolling Stone magazine is released. Muhammad Ali is stripped of his heavyweight title. And the six-day war in Israel took place. All right, my favorite. Our best scenes and lines from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Wonderful shots, uh, great cinematography, them awesome moments uh, in this film. Let's start with your runner-up, Warren. My runner-up is um, when Tuco starts walking through the town, and it looks like he, you know, he's kind of outmatched, and then Blondie pops up in that building, kind of leaning uh, through there, <laughs> kind of gives him that smirk. Were you gonna die alone? And then they just kind of emerge together and they start walking through the town and just killing all the bad guys. It's fucking awesome. And I love this relationship between Tuco and Blondie. It's the constant give and take, the the power struggle they have between each other. It's just so fantastic in this film, the constant alliances and betrayals. But this is one of those moments where it's like they work together and it's very enjoyable to watch. Probably one of the first times where you feel like, okay, they're going to team up and they're going to they're going towards the same goal, but they're going to start actually working together to some degree. Uh, yeah, that's a great choice. I mean, I wasn't even on my radar. And, uh, the fact oh, that's awesome, man. The mood and the music kicked in there. It's fu- it's fucking great. Well, the thing, the fact that it is, is there's so many, I mean, it's almost three hour film and there's a lot of great moments in it. A lot of great scenes. Um, my runner up was when uh, Blondie uh, saves Tuco at the end of the film and rides off. Like you see him, Pop in uh, in the far shot, and you know Tuco screaming after him. You're you're hoping you're just like, is he gonna save him? You don't want Tuco to die, even though he probably deserves it. Um, and then he he shoots him down. His face hits the back, <laughs> and then you get that the, the ugly, the bad, the good, uh, and then the, the the theme kicks in, and, and the film ends. I mean. I, you know, I'm a sucker for opening scenes normally, but this is one of the greatest endings of all time. Yeah, it's awesome because I love how he just fucks with him even at the end. And, yes. he leaves him, and he didn't even take all the money. He actually leaves him his half. But here's the thing. He's still fucked. He's got all that money. He has no way to carry it. I mean, it's hard enough to walk back into town with no horse. You have to carry <laughs> all that gold. He's, he, he's still kind of in a bad situation. That's why he's still not very happy at the end. After He's still cussing at him. Well, yeah, I mean, but that's so funny though. It just, it just, it is. It's hilarious. It's a I love perfect it. capitulation to that relationship. I love it. Yeah. Uh, all right. What was your winner? Come on, man. It's the most iconic in the film, possibly in cinema history. It's the Mexican standoff, the yes. three-way standoff at the end. Uh, that was mine too. I got to go ahead and throw it out there. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. Arguably the greatest duel, man. It's so iconic, so impactful. How many scenes? I mean, Tarantino's made a career of having violent final showdowns that have no doubt been directly inspired from this scene. Uh, Tarantino certainly made it his own and has been great in his own right. I mean, he reinvented the crime genre when he first came out with his movies, just like Sergio Leone reinvented spaghetti western genre and created a subgenre. So, not taking anything away from Tarantino, but you—you—that just speaks to the, the how powerful this scene is and how 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 great it is. Yeah, I read somewhere that there was a total of 96 edits slash cuts whenever the, the, it's speeding up and it's showing their faces b- before Blondie shoots his gun. 
I don't know if that's true. I haven't actually slowed down to count them myself, but it's such an epic moment in film history on the for the movie itself. I mean, this is what you're waiting for, this showdown. So, yeah. Just how it's staged. It's not like they don't even talk terms. There's no referee. They don't like, okay, here's the rule. But they just like, Eastwood grabs the rock and just starts walking away and doesn't say a fight. And then just like the other two guys just kind of put together what the situation is. It's, it's great. But I mean, they've all been established as very, very badass, and you you don't want any of them to die to some degree. Uh, it's yeah, it's it it's a wonderful moment. I love it. Honorable mentions. I have a few. Uh, my first one, which was almost my runner-up, is when uh, Tuco and Blondie try to trick the Union soldiers with their Confederate disguise. They agree like us. Let's say hello to them and then get going. Hurrah! Hurrah for the Confederacy! Yeah, a gross miscalculation by uh, by Tuco. It always makes me laugh. Yeah, the, the, the just the dust covering it up, and then then you know they think that they're well on their way to the gold, and the, everything turns to shit. But yeah, that's great. Um, and then one also very close one for me. Uh, it, just so many great moments uh, is when Tuco is tracking Blondie through the desert, and you see him go to the different the the campfires from the night before and he picks up the cigars and the first one is not burning at all the second one has a little bit and then finally he gets one where he can start smoking it a little bit so he knows he's hot on the trail and catches up great music the the great way to show that he's catching up to blondie uh so that that was another close one for me so many good scenes we're not none of the, i've got all completely different honorable mentions okay i mean i've still got uh, i've got a couple more but you go ahead and what were some of yours uh, it's another uh, a, a gross miscalculation by Tuco. It's in the third act when they're finally heading towards the cemetery, him and Blondie, after they went, made their way through the village together. And he's uh, he's starts to boast to Blondie that he, uh, he, he knows where he's going. We better wait for nightfall. Trust in me, Blondie. <laughs> I, I, I got a good sense of where I'm going. Tuco has taken you this far. I will take you all the way to... <laughs> how classic is that i feel like we've seen that situation in a lot of movies since where a character will be bragging then all of a sudden you see guns pointed at him and it's like oh shit and then they cuts to them they're, they're captured again there's some comedy in the way it's directed by leone and i i love that scene well what it's funny to me in that scene is that you know they get caught by the union soldiers there and it's like they immediately like walk down a tiny hill and they see this huge army before them. Are you telling me they couldn't see that in front of them while they were talking? I mean, come on. I mean, it's a funny moment, but yeah, let's be real here. They, they, they would have known. It was, was, it was just on the horizon. It's cut together well enough for you don't, it you is. don't think You're, that at is. the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another honorable mention is um, Blondie is such a mysterious character, but the compassionate moment when he lets that dying sh- sh- uh, soldier smoke his cigar and he, he throws, he covers him with his jacket and that's where he grabs the uh, the poncho that we've seen in the other Dollars films. He finally puts the poncho on and actually if we look at it, that's where he acquires the poncho because he already has it in the other two films. That's, so that's right. That's kind of yes. the origin story of the poncho there. But Very I really cool. love that scene because it gives us some insight uh, into Blondie, uh, you know, uh, you know th- th- that he's not, a, he's not a complete cold blood running through his veins. He's got a heart. It was so hard to narrow down a winner and runner-up that he, I even had this one as well as like right there in the running with with the the ones that I ended up choosing. But yeah, this one is a very listen. It's not cut and dry that the good, the bad, and the ugly. There is no like clear good, bad, or ugly. And that, that's kind of the point of it is that you can't apply these simplistic moral values to these characters to this film. But that is the one thing, one of the few things that shows Blondie as a true good is that he has that yeah. compassion. Yeah. And it makes him likable because he even has that sense of humor about how, you know, he always he, he only only kills people that really deserve it. I mean, he never intends on really hurting Tuco. And then even when that he's went into alliance with somebody else with the bounty hunter scam shorty, 
And then uh, Tuco finally catches up to him. He's like, what about Shorty? And he's just like, sorry, Shorty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, well, he only did that out of his own self-preservation. You know, yeah, well, so. sure. But I'm just like, it's still, it, you, he didn't want that to happen. But it, it, it's, yeah. it's kind of a brutal moment, too. You're like, oh, shit, somebody just fucking died. You know? Well, and not to say that Shorty didn't deserve it. I mean, he was at the one end of a, a bad end of a noose. So, I mean, he sure. probably did, needed to be up there. Yeah. My last honorable mention is Tuco is about to finally get vengeance on a blondie he's got him hanging uh he's about to shoot the stool and it's a great suspenseful build up by leone and then the, there's cannonball fire going on the whole time and then the cannonball hits the building knocks tuco into submission and then blondie gets away yeah just man and there's there was that there's the scene where um this is one of my favorite shots in the film is when you see Blondie rolling down the sand dune. He looks like he's very far away and then he rolls just a little bit. He's like right in front of the camera. And then Tuco kicks that water bottle down at him and the way it rolls. I mean, that's just such a cool shot. And the, and then the, the, the Bill Carson Confederate carriage comes in to help save his life there. I mean, you have the cannonball moment. You just mentioned that there's so many near death moments for blondie where something happens to save his life so it's very cool all right best lines from the film i will start with my runner up and it's one from tuco he has a lot of great ones uh it's when you have to shoot shoot don't talk yeah that's a that's my winner that's your winner okay it was yeah very i clear. love that line yeah the one that was my winner very uh nearly beat uh this one out but yeah it's a it's, it, Tuco's just trying to take a bath, and of course he's got his gun in there. It's awesome, though, because I love how the soap's on the barrel of the pistol. I love how he gets out of the bath and shoots him one more time. Like, that's the first time you've probably seen that in a movie before. Like, they didn't do that. Uh, I love that. Uh, and how, how impactful is that? Like, people actually, you know, even in, I think, of a King of New York, Christopher Walken's like, you know, boom, boom. You know, he shoots the guy three or four times after he's dead. I mean, yeah. I, feel, I feel like Good, the Bad, the Ugly, this scene had some kind of uh, impact there. Well, that was also the first time where you get to see Tuco's capabilities as a gunsman, you know, as like, you know, well, I would say the, the one earlier than that is where he kind of take, makes his own Frankenstein Magnum pistol uh, when he goes to see the, the gunsmith and he yeah. takes all the parts with him and you're like, okay, he knows what he's doing. He shoots down the range and it, it, that's a cool moment too. Um, so yeah, bat, Tuco, Tuco is a badass, and I think he's uh, uh, not appreciated enough as one in this film. Yeah. Um, all right, my winner for best line, and I can't believe you didn't have it, is from Blondie. It's when he says, You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. You dig. That was my runner-up. So we flip-flopped there. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Almost, almost, almost a double matchup. Almost a double matchup. Wow. Well, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. Man, that's so crazy. I mean, those are, to me, the, the two best lines, and you could flip, put them in any order, but they deserve Crazy that there. we picked the two, those two, though, because there are a lot of good ones. I mean, like even uh, Sorry Shorty or, you know, uh, and we'll get to some of them in the honorable mentions, which I'll kick us off here. Another good one, and this is a contender, was uh, another one by Blondie. Ah, oh, that was a good one too. Yeah, man, I love that one. That's, That's very such good. a good one. Um, and another great one by Blondie. Such ingratitude after all the times I've saved your life. I love the way he <laughs> says that. I had that too. There's a man. lot of irony, man. There's just like a lot of like he's full of shit. <laughs> yeah, he's just like uh, he, he knows he's full of shit too. He's not even yeah, trying dude, no, to hide even, it. <laughs> even when he's like, you may take all the risk, but you know, I'm I'm doing the cutting. And if my cut goes down, well, that might affect my aim. Like, he's so <laughs> full of shit, he's so man. Good. so good. He's so good. And, like, you're like, this is the good? This is the good guy? I actually only had one honorable mention you didn't name. It's from actually Tuco. But if you miss, you had better miss very well. Whoever double-crosses me and leaves me alive, he understands nothing about Tuco. <laughs> nothing. Almost made my honorable mention. I had to kind of cut cut it off at four. I got a couple more here. Um, and it's Tuco and Blondie say it to each other. But, well, one says the next 70 miles. The other one says the next 100. But it's... You know, if you save your breath, I feel a man like you could manage it. When they're each one is stranded in the desert. Oh, I, I yes. Just, yes I kind, kind of, of a, love. It's kind of... A, it kind of plays back on. say it back on, to yeah. each other. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then my last honorable mention would be... And it's by uh, by Angel Eyes when he says... People with ropes around their necks don't always hang. He knew the scam they were playing. Oh, yeah, yeah he knew what was up, yeah. Moving on to Judge Bob's recasting court. 
where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars. All rise for the Honorable Judge Bob, presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court is now in session. Looked at the notes here, looking forward to getting into it. Gentlemen, we'll hear recasting for the good, the bad, and the ugly. No reason to hesitate. Let's jump right into it, make it take it rules. Warren, who do you have cast for the ugly? The rat... Tuco, the ugly. Uh, this is the only character the audience really gets to know out of the trio. I mean, the other two are en- enigmas. Uh, 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 but this character is a resilient. Uh, you know, he's an outlaw bandit. He's really got a bounty at the beginning of the film for two thousand. Think it gets up to three. Uh, comical, fast talking, but uh, you know, also cunning. Uh, I went with Benicio del Toro, and once I settled on him, you think about. The combination uh, that Del Toro would bring to this character, and and I always think of him in Usual Suspects. He flip you, he flip you for real. Like you need that type of uh, comic uh, ability on, on top of the acting chops, and Del Toro's got it in spades. Phil, who do you have here? Uh, yeah, I, I think the description of the character is dead on. I mean, he's got he's really the one of the main three that has a true arc. I would say. I mean, he doesn't really I, he grows a little bit of it as a character, but not, not so much. I mean, he's still just kind of a greedy SOB. Well, they all are. <laughs> they fucking all are. He, that, that's fair. Yeah. The, 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 even the term, the good is used very loosely. Uh, really just the, the goodest is not a word, but uh, of the three, but anyway, comedy wise dead on, uh, to me, there's like an intensity with his expressions, especially his eyes at the, at, at the same time though, he, he is a badass. I mean, he can very much fend for himself. He deserves to, be in the final standoff with those other two two gentlemen. Uh, I went with Javier Bardem, oh, mine, and he just got the range uh, to 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 execute uh, what needs to be done on screen with this character. Yeah, Javier's so badass though. You almost think he would be the bad. I mean, he, he'd be the guy taking people out uh, for money. Uh, it's funny that you said that. I could actually see him as all three characters. He's that great of an actor. I could see him as two uh, of the don't three. I don't know about the good. He, there's not a lot of good about Bardem's characterizations. <laughs> At least a lot of who he plays. Don't get me wrong about Benicio, but I, to me, there's an intensity with the eyes and the expressions and you know your face is your face and del toro is a great actor but that's not the actor that's leone's style of directing he does a lot of close-ups of the eyes all the actors have that in the film so that's but like beneath but del toro's eyes are what they are he's more of a laid-back chill even in usual spe- uh, suspects he's got that the, 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 the you comedy can't, you can't put del toro in a box he's played every type of character and then some uh he could d- definitely has played a variation of this at some point he would kill and hey, bardem's great i just think again bardem's a little too badass this guy's the least badass of the three. He's still a badass, though. Don't get that. I mean, you better not doubt that. He, he very much is. All right. I, I like the conversation. I could sit back and listen. I'm going to put the robe on here, bang the gavel a couple of times, and uh, just tell both of you to uh, go F yourself. This is impossible. How do you pick between these two? Uh, a hell of a <laughs> casting, guys. Absolutely. I, 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 I don't like to go either way on this one, and I, I mean that just all the way through. Uh, there's a griminess. There's, you know, just some certain things about this character that sadly I have to pick away. I'm going to give it nod to Benicio del Toro. On this one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I hate For sure. him. I hate yeah. Javier's such an incredible actor. They're both fantastic. Both Oscar winners. All right. Keep it rolling. Right. Who do we have cast Warren for the bad? Angel Eyes Sentenza, which means judgment or sentence, the bad. Uh, man, this was not easy. This is a ruthless, sadistic assassin who who kills people for money, and he always finishes the job. So there's this um, very badass quality that the actor portraying it has to have, and and that is why I ended up recasting Michael Fassbender. A true badass on screen. He would be able to embody a lot of his behaviors. Uh, th- this character, as I mentioned before, is an enigma. There- there's a mysteriousness to him. Fastbender would-, would fill that in and-, and bring so much to the screen with the character. Phil, who do you have here? Excellent choice. Love Fastbender. Um, I'm pulling out the big guns with this one. Uh, you know, the- Sentenza is my personal favorite character in this film. Uh, I mean, if you had to look at like, D&D alignments he is lawful evil you know he's like he's bad but he's got a code uh you what, can Dexter that in the wild west <laughs> yeah somewhat um so uh I, I actually you know 
I wanted to pull a big caliber actor. I feel that's what it takes to 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 portray this role. I went with Christian Bale. Oh, yeah, and and, and you know he he's a. I mean, of course he he's he can wear any mask he needs to to portray any role. I think the name speaks for itself as far as the argument can, is concerned. Yeah, I mean, just, but. Yeah, busting out a lot of star power here, man. I mean, we we've recasted Bale in De Niro's shoes and in Heat. Okay, I mean, this is uh, this this actor can and is up to almost every challenge, man. Well, great recasting. I mean, pulling out the big guns. We'll go ahead. Um, we're going to pass quick judgment on this one. Love the fast bender character. Uh, love the actor and what he brings to the table. It's Bale. Bill. Yeah, it's thank you. Yeah, it's I mean, in that's, the eyes. I mean, even those uh, he's got those black eyes like uh, Sentenza has in the film. Oh, yeah, it'd be great. It's Bill. So as we should be, we're all tied up going into the final casting of the night. Phil, make it take it rules. Pressure's on you. Who do you have cast for the good? I thought of it instantly. Uh, and, you know, there's a stoic quality. This just type of, you know, just the strong, silent type, the, you know, the Gary Cooper-esque Western, just, you know, the way he carries himself on screen. Clint Eastwood does as Blondie is just, I mean, that that character for for that, you know, the the, the Dollars trilogy. Yeah. Uh, a man with no name and a man of few words. Yes. And uh, I think there's it has to be this, again, this quiet, reserved nature, but you never doubt how badass he is, even when he's at his lowest and looks like he's going to die. Mahershala Ali is my Blondie. <sighs> Pulling out big guns again. Uh, big yeah, guns. D- yeah, d- yeah, double you, big man. guns. Um, wow. Uh there's a stoic quality uh, yes. to this character, and Mahershala is one of the best actors at doing that. I almost thought of Ryan Gosling for that very reason. Gosling is fantastic at playing long, extended parts of a film without saying a word of dialogue. Uh, he he is he is I, he just doesn't necessarily have that type of hardened yeah. Western. No, yeah, 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 yeah. To fair him, enough. You know? Yes, I didn't go with Gosling. I said I did think of him. I, oh, okay, I, okay, I, gotcha, I ended up yeah. going with uh, Chris Pine. Mm, okay. Uh, my blondie uh, the, as the good. Um, you know, you do get a little bit of insight into this character. Uh, there's a stretch of the film. He has a particular, uh, he does care for the wounded soldiers, uh, more so than most people. He goes out of his way to, you can see, he really cares for him, and, and, and um, he, he's got a heart there. So uh, Chris Pine is, is one of the uh, better leading men of his generation uh, at the top of the list. And when, you, when you're a leading man, you, a leading lady, you got to have massive amounts of empathy. We do see that with the good. Uh, through parts of the film, that's that's kind of what makes him the lead uh, out of the three or the closest thing to it. Uh, a confident, capable character. Chris Pine is fantastic in this, and I still don't think he's gotten that star-making role yet. I mean, yeah, he's a star, but man, there's something to take him to the A level. I mean, the A plus level to the to the uh, you know the, the the DiCaprio stratosphere. Pine is still uh, waiting for that role, and, uh, and the man with no name is the one to do it. I mean, he's, I mean, he's. He got the he's the Kirk role in Star Trek, a huge blockbuster. That launched film. him. I mean, I think. That launched him. But he hasn't. Okay. I mean, he hasn't had. I mean, I loved him in Unstoppable. But he, you know, when he was opposite Denzel, he got the movie star treatment and lighting with Tony Scott directing. But really, in, since then, I mean, I haven't seen him take it to that next level. I mean, you could say Jack Ryan really didn't do it. Uh, so we're, I'm a big fan of Pine, and I'm waiting for him to get that next uh, next star vehicle. I absolutely adore. Chris Pine, the guy takes up every inch of screen from side to side, top to bottom. I just absolutely love the guy. But he's one of the most charming people on the face of the planet. And we're talking about a yeah. a, a Western in just the stoicism. And there's there's a, a bore to it. There's just a, a, a masculine boringness to a stoic Western character. <laughs> and... Chris Pine is just—he's just too damn charming. If you is just—that uh, doesn't mean anything. I mean, he's <sighs> certainly got the range. I mean, Mahershala Ali's charming. I mean, they, they, well, I think people associate me like, I, like okay, so the, like the the middle part of the movie where Chris Pine is like, or I'm sorry, the Blondie is like uh, taking prisoner and like kind of getting his ass kicked around by Tuco and this kind of like that would be funny to watch with Chris Pine. I, I almost think that. Gosling would be pretty great in this actually. If you, the more I think about it, I actually think he would get dirty enough to pull it off. You see Blondie that happening to him, but like the times where he makes the turn and he's a badass, you're never just like, Whoa, you're not surprised by it. You want him to, to rise to the occasion. You expect him to in that moment. I feel like if you do a Gosling or a Chris Pine, it'll surprise the audience. Whereas with Mahershala Ali, it's like, he will be, you, 
you will expect it to happen. You know he's the badass that he's portraying. I, th- I think it was great, great casting on the Marshali. The name I was looking for, and guys, how did we miss Scott Eastwood on this, right? I'm not going to lean into the nepotism of Hollywood and recasting. There's enough of that going on as it is. So, l- l- so if we had to break down those three choices, Ali is the good, Pine's the bad, Eastwood, man, that's the ugly dude. You can't pick Eastwood for yeah, Scott come on, Eastwood. Dude. Yeah, well, come <laughs> on. No way. Well, um, Phil, that'll give you the win today. Yes, thank you. I am a golden god! And gentlemen... Recasting court is adjourned. And we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of the good, the bad, and the ugly. We like to avoid hyperbole, but I mean, this is widely regarded as one of the best Westerns of all time. And the soundtrack is one of the most iconic themes of all time. Yeah, going back to Morricone, and you could, again, have a whole podcast about that. But that motif, the coyote howl, uh, the, the, that is just so associated with Westerns. That has become like the ultimate Western motif when you hear that. Um, and it really subverted what Western orchestral soundtracks were. It completely flipped it on its head. And that's what, that's how most people, I would say of this generation know it now is from what more Coney did with the genre. Yeah. I mean, it's the definitive spaghetti Western. It transcended the genre and just impacted Westerns as a whole because of how, uh, how fantastic this film was. Uh, the spaghetti Western was around long before Leone. I mean, even the Germans wrote Westerns. I mean, it, it was something of a, um, uh, a European tradition back then, but it was the Italians that came along and started making these pictures with broken down stars, Rick Dalton, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, broken down leading men uh, or up and comers like Clint Eastwood. And, uh, you know, uh, Leone was the first filmmaker making spaghetti Westerns that to have a real impact in America. Dozens of filmmakers were making spaghetti westerns back then, but it was only Leone's that played in America. I mean, Sergio Carbucci got no love. Sergio who? Sergio Carbucci. Hey, who, and who's that? The second best director of spaghetti westerns in the whole wide world. When it comes to the midseason classics, we do try to curate them to make sure we're, we're doing things that are representative of the industry of the era, of how things the, land, the landscape of movies changed. Like you take a look at last season's when we did 2001, A Space Odyssey. There were a lot of sci-fi films being made, but they were like B quality. They weren't looked at as, you know, deserving of the Academy of the Prestige that maybe some other genres were getting. That's how the Spaghetti Western was before Leone came along. And this is the one that elevated it. Yeah, I mean, Leone's Good, Bad, the Ugly in particular has a realism that the American Westerns of the 30s, 40s, and 50s just didn't have. Less talk, more killing, more theatrical, more iconic Wild West with uh, Morricone's uh, uh, music. Uh, and Tarantino ref- has a great way what he calls the music. It's a, an illustrative ingredient because, you know, Sergio Leone had limited uh, English. You know, he didn't know very much. So the shots and, and, and the music were much more important to him. And if you watch this film and if you're watching it for the first time, you would be like, what is wrong with the what's wrong with the dialogue? Why? Why is there issues with the, 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 the lips syncing up with the sound? It's because dialogue was second or even third to Leone. What was going on on camera and the music, those took precedent. Well, no, the reason the, the, the lips don't match up with the dialogue is because the Italian way of the way of making movies in Italy is all the sound was recorded in post, even the lines. They didn't record any sound when they shot. That's why. And some of the actors spoke their native dialogues and then some spoke English. Um, so there mm. was that. So they had dubbing on both parts. Like, you know, in the Italian version, someone dubbed. Eastwood's parts. So um, there was part of that too, but yes, there were some limitations at the time of technology, but I would say that it it is on record where Leone, he was more focused on the, the film itself and the music than the overdubbing. Like that wasn't as much of a concern with him as that being spot on. The genre exploded in popularity around the world uh, after The Good and Bad the Ugly. It, this film redefined what the, as we've said, it, it redefined what the Western genre became. Spaghetti Westerns, anti-heroes, the brutality, it, it just it resonated with audiences of the time. I mean, the, the time of the 60s, you had the Vietnam War, there were, it, was time, it was troubled times, darker times, and uh, the, the Spaghetti Westerns uh, re- reflected that. Well, the, the, the American Westerns, again, go back to the morality thing, that was very much of a good versus evil, good guy, bad guy. Whereas this film, uh, specifically in other spaghetti westerns, 
the the focus on them was, hey, you know, some things are gray. It's that it's not so easy. It's not so cut and dry to see good and bad. Uh, and so there was that conflict, the real world conflict of character uh, that were represented so well in this film and other spaghetti westerns. Leone's style and trademarks, when you talk about Good, the Bad, the Ugly, we got to talk about Leone's directing style, at least touch on it. Uh, long takes, and you can see that in this film. I mean, there's one shot, 16 seconds of a dog crossing a town. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a 37-second there's a shot, a uh, wide shot of the showdown at the end. Uh, he loves wide open spaces. He pulls the camera back, uh, you know, using a, a main event as a backdrop. And then the way he shoots it uh, just really adds to the scale of the picture. Uh, he likes to go from wide to tight. And, and, and he's if you look at Leone, he is a master of casting actors faces, mm. uh, the, 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 not even the leads. A, a lot of the extras or the bit part players, uh, their faces are, are a part of the backdrop. And I think of the landscape and that 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 that's what adds to the realism. Uh, it's one of the things I love about Dunkirk. You feel like all those faces you're seeing are faces of the British Navy of the 40s. There's something. Yes. The faces add to the, the conviction and, and, and the, the buying in the believability. Yeah, there's an aesthetic to it. You know, you feel like those people belong there you know that they look like they are from that time from that era uh it's not just someone you know making a movie about it it looks mm-hmm. like it was shot that at that that time period and leone is very conscious of art in his movies lots of shots come from paintings much like uh an example would be a stanley kubrick with pictures uh and then of course you got the great music with leone uh and, and who he's associated hand in hand with morricone uh but the, using the utilization of great music in his in, in his films it just it's master cinematic storytelling and that is something that is a trend of the films we we cover on the replay value podcast is that yes a movie can be great but memorable music, the iconic nature of that is what elevates a film to that zeitgeist level and makes it memorable in that way is, is how great the soundtrack can be. Uh, the music can, can get does so much for a film to do that. And with Good, Bad, the Ugly and Morricone, that is the best example of it. Pop Culture Connection, 778. Uh, it's referenced in SNL, uh, Back to the Future 3. Uh, yeah. The alias of uh, Marty McFly Clint is Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and he dresses like Blondie. Yeah. Uh, the poncho, everything is, uh, I mean, it's, it looks like it's cut from the same cloth of Good, the Bad, the Ugly. And I, I, I saw Back to the Future Part 3 before I saw The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. And man, that poncho look, I was like, man, it's so badass. I want that, <laughs> you know, it was yeah. cool. But no doubt after watching this, you know where it comes from. Yes. Uh, the the, uh, the Sandlot, uh, the, the face-off with the Beast, uh, you know, the, the music there, which we did earlier this season. Uh, uh, yeah. You hear the theme song on uh, on Sopranos and um, the Reserv- and Reservoir Dogs. Uh, there's an homage to it. When um, Michael uh, Madsen's character asks the security guard if he likes music as he tortures him and uh, 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 Angel Eyes asks Tuco if he likes music when he's eating before he tortures mm. him. So it's a, it's a, it's a direct oh, reference okay. there. I kind of love that. Uh, it's spoofed in uh, Pee-wee's Big adventure a childhood favorite might get around to doing that at some point um robin hood men in tights fucking <laughs> oh brooks wow and uh it was uh spoofed in none other than the simpsons i mean the theme alone again i think has been spoofed a lot because it's so associated with the the western uh but i mean yeah it's one of those that is everyone has referenced it at this point or spoofed it. Uh, all-time list, and there are a bunch. I'm only going to name a handful here. Uh, Variety ranked it number 49 on its 50 greatest movies. It was listed on Premier Magazine's 100 Most Daring Movies Ever Made. It also made Empire Magazine's Masterpiece Collection and was ranked number 47 on Empire Magazine's 300 Greatest Movies of All Time. And, of course, the Zen master himself, Quentin Tarantino, ranked The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly number one on his 11th greatest movies list we did it twice one in 2002 and in 2012 for sight and sound magazines polls so he's done it mm. and i guess if they do it every 10 years they're due to do one uh next year and we'll see if it's still on there for tarantino as the number sure one. sure it is yeah a couple of personal connections for me where i see the influence is i was a big fan and am a big fan of the dark tower series by stephen king and if you go back and read i mean if you if you read that at all and you see the character Roland Deschain, the, the main character of the series, that is Blondie to a T, or the, the man with no name from the Dollars trilogy. There's some so much association there, and King has gone on record saying that that served uh, as an inspiration for him with that character. 
And then uh, the costume, which we talked about with Back mm. to the Future. And have to mention that, you know, you talk about an, an IP, an intellectual property that is iconic as this. Where's the sequel? Where's what happened to the Dollars trilogy after this? Well, a sequel was going to be planned that took place 20 years after the original, which had Tuco going after Blondie's grandson for his half of the gold. Rumor had it that Eastwood was on board with the idea, but Leone nixed it. He vetoed, said he didn't want to do anything else with those characters. So thankfully... He wouldn't make any more Westerns, I think. I think he was done with the genre at that yeah. point. Well, I mean, you should be done with the characters too, but I mean, I hope we never see a sequel. I mean, maybe a reimagining at some point, but it's so perfect. Don't don't try to pick up the story. Just don't. And Michael Wilmington of the Chicago Tribune summed it up best when he said, quote, an improbable masterpiece, a bizarre mixture of grandly operatic visuals, grim brutality, and sordid violence that keeps wrenching you from one extreme to the other, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. The Replay Value podcast is hosted by me, Philip Reinerson, and my brother, Warren Paul. Our recasting judge is Bob Thompson. Produced, edited, and directed by Waldo Pickles Productions and dedicated to our father, who we have to thank for our love of cinema. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can visit us on our website, replayvaluepod.com, and follow us on Twitter at replayvaluepod. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye. This has been a Waldo Pickles production. 